and welcome to another episode of Everything is Canon, a Siddlings podcast. I'm your host, Dave Duncan. However, you may have found your way here. Thanks so much for tuning in. On this podcast, we invite authors from all genres onto the show to discuss their latest books and novels, as well as just about anything else that comes to mind. If you want to reach me, there are several ways to do so, but the best way is to email me at steve at cinelinks.com, or you can always find me on Twitter at stevedunk5 or at everythingcanon. Today in the show, I'm talking to Sylvia Morena-Garcia all about her latest release, Velvet Was the Night, which is described as, From the New York Times bestselling author of Mexican Gothic comes a delicious twisted treat for lovers of noir. But a daydreaming secretary, a lonesome enforcer, and the mystery of a missing woman they're both desperate to find. The front matter, principal text, and back matter in this book all hit very high levels. With a great introduction, a killer playlist, which also serves as the book's in-universe soundtrack, a very edifying author's notes, a gorgeous cover, and one of the best epilogues in recent memory. Yes, this book is a fantastic cover-to-cover read. These pages turn themselves, and despite the dark noir aesthetic, freedom-crushing state violence, and a story completely lacking in empathy, Velvet Was the Night is one of the most fun and romantic books I've read this year. We talk about the highs and lows of social media marketing, the non-fiction leanings of the book, convention versus non-convention storytelling, Velvet Was the Night, of course, and much, much more. While this is a spoiler-free discussion, the odd minor detail may slip out, so if you haven't read the book and don't wish to be spoiled at all, better stop listening now, but definitely double back once you've read it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. As always, around these parts, we encourage supporting authors and stories that affirm the lives of people other than ourselves. Each time we either engage in a conversation, whether it be online or face-to-face, or each time we participate in the market with our purchasing choices. A reminder that next month, September, is National Hispanic Heritage Month in the U.S., so please support the Hispanic communities in any way that you can. Since we talk books here, I'm going to provide a list of some but not all Hispanic authors who kick all kinds of ass, and this should be done all year long, of course, not just because the calendar tells you, so please check for that link after the show. Uh, Mexican by birth, Canadian by inclination, Silvia Moreno-Garcia is the author of several critically acclaimed and award-winning novels, including Certain Dark Things, The Beautiful Ones, Gods of Jade and Shadow, Mexican Gothic, and others. She has edited several anthologies, including She Walks in Shadows, and is the publisher of Innsmouth Free Press. She co-edited the horror magazine The Dark with Sean Wallace from 2017 to 2020, and is a columnist for The Washington Post. Basically, she's really busy. She has an MA in Science Technology Studies from the University of British Columbia. Her thesis can be read online and is titled Magna Matter, Women and Eugenic Thought in the Work of H.P. Lovecraft. But she's here today to talk about her new book, Velvet Was the Night, which is described as from the New York Times bestselling author of Mexican Gothic comes a delicious twisted treat for lovers of noir about a daydreaming secretary, a lonesome enforcer, and the mystery of a missing woman they're both desperate to find. The front matter, principal text, and back matter in this book are all fucking great, uh, in my opinion. It's got a great introduction, a killer playlist, which also serves as the book's in-universe soundtrack, uh, a very edifying author's notes. Again, one of the best covers of the year, like last year, and don't even get me started on that epilogue, which I've read a hundred times, probably. This book is a fantastic cover-to-cover read. These pages turn themselves, and despite the dark themes, freedom-crushing state violence, and a story completely lacking in empathy for most of it, Velvet Was a Night is actually one of the most fun books I've read this year. Obviously, I liked it very much, and I'm so happy she's here. Please welcome to the show, Silvia Moreno-Garcia. Hi, Silvia. Hi, nice to be here. Good introduction, or? Yes. <laughs> Do you... Obviously, it's you can't be helped the longer you're in this game, the longer the intros get, don't they? Uh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, it's all good things, though, isn't it? And I left out, you know, some of the stuff, too, but you are you are very busy, Um First, I wanted, I know we're kind of through it now, but I'm actually, I was born in BC. I was born on the island uh, in Campbell River there. So not too far from where you live now. And 
Uh, I just want to, I'm curious how you survived. You obviously survived the heat wave and everything. Okay. So just how was that for you? that heat wave that you guys went through not long ago? Oh, well, one of the things that I think people don't understand who are not living in like the Pacific Northwest is that it's not that we are drama queens is just that we are not prepared for this kind of heat. So in other parts, you know, people have air conditioning, but basically in BC, it's still not that common. So a lot of us don't have air conditioning. So when temperatures go up that high and there's uh, mollusks that are dying in the water, basically being fried alive, people are are also getting heat stroke and not being able to cool themselves down. So it is, it can be a very serious emergency, even though I think for some people in places like Arizona or other parts of the world, they can just you know, laugh the same way that they laugh when we get snow and we're not prepared for it and everything kind of shuts down, but it's the same thing. It's not that snow is insurmountable. It's just that in a place where we don't get that much snow and we don't get that much extreme heat, suddenly having these sort of extremes when they do happen can be very chaotic. That's right. And there was a lot of sort of, that was similar to remember it was at Texas and they had their freeze last year. That's right. And, and remember how, and, you know, people, I saw people making, I saw Canadians making snide comments to them, right? Like, you know, making jokes about how they're not ready. And they're, of course, they're not ready. Like for all the reasons you just said, right? If you're not used to it, you're not ready. And especially at a state from a state situation, they're not ready. Like plow trucks, ice salt, all these things that we take for granted up here for the winter, of course, they would be lacking. Now flip that instead of snow, it's heat. And yeah, we're, you know, especially in, I mean, we're in Ontario, I'm in Ontario, we're a little bit more used to the humidity and stuff. So, geez, I think everyone I know up here has air conditioning um, that can afford it anyways. Um, But yeah, no, in BC, it's not like that, is it? So um, who was I talking to? Nafisa Azad, another author that lives in Vancouver there. And uh, it was sort of during the heat wave and she was just, you know, it was really scary because she had some older relatives and in some, you know, not great situations and all their, you know, like you said, plants are just, it was pretty, it's pretty bad. So um, it's a good point for people need to realize uh, it is a pretty dangerous situation, isn't it? Um, but you made it out and and hopefully uh, you, for any friends and family, there was no, uh, nobody affected too seriously from it, I hope. Um, yeah, what, no, it, it, it went okay. But okay. yeah, just a few weird days. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um have you you've been in Vancouver the whole time, like since you moved to Canada? Yes, this, Vancouver is the only place I've ever lived in Canada. So how long has that been now? Oh, um, sixteen years or something like that. Okay, is it home? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, Vancouver is my home now, and Mexico is a part of my past, but it's it's still a part of me. Right, for sure. But when you like think of home you conjure up you know those you know those nice warm feelings we think of when we think of home it's it's vancouver it's canada for you now is it yes yeah That's for sure where my life is yeah perfect uh, any you, no plans on leaving vancouver or anything like that you, you're pretty happy there no i you know i like it here i've seen other parts of the country and they're very nice but i'm comfortable in vancouver as long as i can live here i want to live here it is a very expensive city it is yeah um but I like the West Coast, just a geography of this of this part of Canada. It's 
I like it very much. It's got a bit of everything, um, you know, especially if you enjoy the outdoors and just like the biosphere of it, everything, right? It's, it's really quite amazing. Um, how are things going there with you with the pandemic and everything? Because I know that you guys just are getting into the passport situation and mandatory this and mandatory that. Is everybody being cool about it or no? Because Ontario, where most people are not being cool about it. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a bit of a chaotic week over yeah, here yeah. because we've got suddenly a mask mandate and then a vaccine passport mandate. I think a lot of people in many areas are happy with that. They want it. For example, teachers have been campaigning for a really long time to get masks in school once September started to get you know vaccine passports at universities and things like that to mm-hmm. have that extra level of security. So there's definitely, I think, Um, a sense of relief. And this is something that a lot of people wanted, but um, at the same time, it's just been this kind of roller coaster of emotions of what is happening, what's going to happen next. It's not going to happen. And, and we had a pretty low key summer. So suddenly reading news about the new variant, the Delta variant, and all this talk about where will restrictions be reintroduced? What will that mean? is um is been a little bit you know wild and difficult for people at many levels also for people in the service industry obviously this creates um other issues that we you know maybe some people thought they were already that over that hump and now it's a little bit back to that in terms of um what are they going to do with servers inside dining it's it's a complicated picture it's crazy because it just like it changes on a dime doesn't it this right it feels like it just shifts so quickly and it just feels like we've been constantly reacting this entire time. We haven't been able to get out in front of, in front of it at all. Have we, it's just like, we're constantly like one step behind it. And uh, it just makes, it just throws everybody for a loop. And of course, the longer this thing goes on, the more people are going to get sick of it. Right. Obviously. So it just, you know, emotions are high and I don't know, it's, it's, it's friggin' scares me. And I don't know how much you enjoyed it or even did it before, but it's sort of, you know, because this book is, is fresh out and maybe in a normal situation, you would be doing, you would be doing in-person events or maybe on the road on a tour or getting ready to do some conventions or something. If you did do that stuff before, how were you before with crowds and, and sort of germs and these types of things where you did it concern you at all before? Like, has this changed the way you were going to approach that stuff going forward? If we're ever allowed to do it again? <laughs> Um, It's actually been very good for me because I've never done a book tour, like a full on book tour paid by a publisher. Right. So I've been able to do more events than I would have been able to do in any other previous years. Right. There's some things that I would have never been booked for. But right now, because people are accepting of things going on on Zoom, I can go on. I've also been on certain types of programming with people from other parts of the world. Like right now I'm talking to somebody about doing something maybe um, in Pakistan, I think with a Pakistani bookstore and a writer over there. And so we have very different hours. Like it'll be morning, I think when, and it'll be late at night for me when I'm doing that, but it's manageable, but it's just something that I don't think people would have thought to kind of do before. And now it's like, okay, well maybe we can pull this off. So in that sense, it's been, it's been actually very positive. And I do know that I also have a friend who uses a wheelchair and sometimes not all the events or venues are prepared to facilitate um, 
you know, access to people who have mobility issues. So for her, actually being at home, um, you know, on front of the screening, being able to access some of this programming is better than having to maybe navigate a venue that is not very uh, friendly for somebody in a wheelchair. So there's definitely positives to this. And I've had more of the positive end of, uh, of the issue. I would like to do some in-person events at some point in the future. So definitely would like to do some signings or things like that. People enjoy it. And I am doing probably something at the Vancouver Writers Festival in person in a couple of months. I'm not sure what that's going to look like, especially with the restrictions right now, what kind of seating or if we might even move it online, but it was supposed to be there. I was supposed to do one thing online and another thing in person. And I think I'll find that, you know, very enjoyable, but um, I think for some other people who might have done a lot more of this kind of touring, it must have been really sort of depressing for me. It, it was just like, okay, well, this, this is not terribly different from the way my life was before in terms of how many places I might do a signing with. And I'm actually doing more events now than, than in previous years. If there's a silver lining from these uh, doing these things virtually and online is not only for what you mentioned, physical disabilities, but other types of disabilities as well. Um, the reach is obviously all, nearly unlimited, right? Because I mean, obviously it's online. You can, as many people that want to watch it can watch it. And most of the time it's free, which is really great for people like you've got fans probably all over the world that are, would never be able to afford or just be able to come see you in person if you were doing it, if you were at a convent, like the, the Vancouver's Writers' Conference, for example, right? Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely uh, some issues of sustainability with totally free programming. Of course. I mean, yep. You know, if, if I'm at a book, if I did a book signing, obviously it's because we want to move a certain number of books, both for me and for the bookstore's sake. And when you don't have that, that is one of the problems sometimes with online programming is when somebody says, okay, yeah, I'm going to the free chat, but I'm going to buy it off Amazon. Yeah. Uh, right. You yeah. Know, that, yeah. That's, that's right. not um, the best. And, solution, but. and we're, and we're really fucking, well, I'm always fucking mad at Amazon, but this thing too lately that where people are giving book poor reviews, not based on the book, but because it showed up like dented or, or the package was wrecked. So they're giving it like a one-star review just because it shipped poorly. Not, and they even say in the comments, they like the book, but it showed up damaged and they give it like a one-star review. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, if we want to be ethical consumers, not just of, you know, things like eggs, you know, I, I try to buy eggs where the chicken has a free run, you know, is able yeah. to go out around in the world because yeah. it's better for the chicken, it's more ethical. We, we also have to be ethical about our artistic consumer choices. And that includes things like you know, throwing a bone to your local shop. I understand that not everybody is going to be able to go physically again into a bookshop or there's not a bookshop nearby. Uh, some people really, um, you know, they, they might shop a lot secondhand, use bookshops, all that kind of thing, or, you know, wait for a really steep discount. And all that is fine because it's part of this book, book kind of ecosystem, this very big um, uh, ecosystem network that feeds off each other books circulate through that but it's when you um, kind of completely make the most um, unethical choice all of the time that it really harms the network so when you are for example con constantly attending events that are put out 
by your local bookstore, but you never shop there. Mm, Not right. even for a bookmark or a gift for somebody. Right. You always when you're shopping at you know some big discount or um, or even pirating books all the time. That's you know that's a bit of a problem. And if you can afford it, it's you know. Yeah, because so sometimes people have a lot of money and they will be like, oh, you know, like I, I won't pay for your book um, or for a ticket for your event, but I, you know, spent all this kind of money on this other thing. And then you're like, man, that's just really, really kind of cruel. <laughs> there's, there's an element of cruelty there. There is, um, isn't it? Well, it's personal. So, and this is like, it comes down to like, you're, this is your labor and you need to get paid for your labor, right? Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't do this. I mean, I don't know maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. Maybe you would do this for free. I don't know. Um, but this, I, this idea of, of, supporting local bookstores in lieu of this international racket that's going on with places like Amazon is important, not only for the reasons you just said, but it also stems this idea of, of people getting things or expecting things for free. And when you force yourself to be a consumer, that there's that, that pays dividends in the long run. Whereas if I click and download something in for free or steal it or whatever, there's no end game to that, right? There's no benefit to that down the road because if everyone did that, you would stop writing books. Yes, it just creates, it increases the already economic pressures that everybody has in, in the whole chain from illustrators to bookstore owners to right. writers that, you know, people have to, you know, people make money working at the counter of a bookstore. And so, yeah, just trying to make the most ethical choice most of the time, I'm, I also, you know, buy things um, off Amazon. I do buy Kindle books and all that kind of stuff, but I try to vary it a little. I've got my, you know, Kobo app and all these mm. other things that I try to do. I try to stop by my local bookstore sometimes and get the gift cards there, that, that sort of thing. And so it's just good to kind of spread it around. Otherwise we create this concentrated monopoly and that's no good for anybody. I mean, it's good in the short term, that's what I just said, right? Like yeah. there's no back yeah. into that, right? There's no benefit yeah. to that. That that hill will peter out. Whereas if you invest in the industry at all levels, like you said, I like I like what you said, spread it around a bit, which is something I actually do. Um, I listen, I could just write off getting books for free, which I do, <laughs> right? Like I get I get arcs, I get books for yeah. you know what I mean? I could never Me spend <laughs> right, exactly. So I could I could spend zero fucking dollars on books if I wanted to, theoretically, but I don't. I spend a lot of money on books still. Um just because I love it. It's just just something that I love. And um but I'm, you know, and again to what you said, there's so many different ways to do it. Like sometimes I wait for books to go on sale. Sometimes I wait till they're 99 cents. Sometimes I shop at my local place it you know in person i do that a lot sometimes i order online it's it i very i mix it around a bit but yeah it's uh you know i know that's come up a lot lately and you know there's been some online battles um with stuff like this and i know you're really great on social media like you're not afraid of it it doesn't seem like you are to me anyways um and that's something sort of i wanted to talk about as far as more of the marketing side of things and more of kind of you made a point there about how a lot of these virtual events I've talked to publishers and oh we're not doing a virtual event for this book and it doesn't I've heard that the phrase it doesn't move the needle it doesn't it doesn't move any units these little events they don't really have have any effect at all on sales so so sometimes they just don't do them and I know a lot of I've talked to a lot of authors who have had good and bad experiences with this regard when it comes to being asked to do more marketing themselves on social media. Have you been asked to do that by a publisher? I've pretty 
I'm pretty good in terms of social media marketing because I do a lot of my own stuff voluntarily. Yeah. So nobody had to put me on Twitter. They did ask me to go on Instagram. My publisher did ask that kind of mm-hmm. like at the beginning of the year, but it was more of a soft ask. Would you consider it? Sure. Kind of thing. Not, I will demand demand it out of you. It is true that it, there is very little that you can do on your own to move the needle yeah. as, as an individual. If you don't have money for an advertising campaign, uh, for a more cohesive strategy, it's, you know, it's not necessarily going to work. And, and one of the bad things that happens is that sometimes writers are made to feel like they failed, you know, that they're failures mm-hmm. and it's all their fault. And, and that's very bad because it's, it's a kind of a team, it's a team effort. It's everything from how much of an advance you got to how much push your editor had to being at the right place at the right time. Unfortunately, at times, yeah, marketing and publicity and editorial teams do make it seem like it's all riding on your shoulders and you were just a really bad writer. So we should probably both give more tools to writers if we're going to ask them to do some of these things, but we should also be more honest with them and have conversations about what to realistically expect in terms of a marketing scenario and an advertising scenario from you know, from a publisher, many times you just don't know you, your book just kind of drops into a black hole and nobody has those serious conversations with you. Obviously, if you've been around for a while, you kind of know, like I knew I've known for a long time that I would not get a book tour because book tours are kind of reserved for really big sellers. You have to be guaranteeing a certain number of units for a bookstore to take you, you know, to spend the time and the resources to stock that book and have people work that night to, to have you there. It's, it's a lot of effort. So I knew that for me, the chances of a fully organized book tour with my publisher paying for my meals and my hotel stays and then arranging all of this stuff was unrealistic considering the volume of books that I was selling at a certain point in time. Right now, it's not unrealistic anymore. But, you know, it was for a really long time. So I knew that from being in the industry for a really long time. But I've also known writers who it's their first book and nobody told them that. So their expectations were really high. And then they kind of came crashing down to reality. And um, there was just not a lot of those conversations. Ideally, an agent should talk to you about that and, and your editor. But sometimes it doesn't happen. And you're left feeling that you have to spend your whole advance, for example, on advertising. Like some people have told me, should I spend my whole advance on, on advertising? It's like, no, because you're not thinking Random House Canada, right? Spend it on rent. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, you know, yeah. spend it on, yeah. on what you need to spend it on. Yeah. yeah. But don't spend it on the salary of somebody that should have been paid by your company. Right. Right. If, you know. Yeah. So this sort of, like, this is new in a way, isn't it? Not like I mean, new in the, you know, in, in the, grand scheme of things right like social media and all these things have changed the way that we approach this now isn't it because it, but before all that we would have just said no your a writer's job is to write a book publisher's job is to sell your book right there wasn't there was no venn diagram there but now with social media there is or there's at least an expectation that there is and you know, like you said, some are better at it than others, and some are more comfortable doing it than the others. And one of the problems is now when you put yourself out there into these social, you know, these digital social arenas, 
I don't think I need to tell you this. It's pretty fucking scary out there, <laughs> right? Like there's some, there's a strange group of people out there who, who just want to say left when you say right. They didn't even, they don't even care what the context is. You seem okay with it to me. Am I getting that right? Or does it scare you and you just force yourself to sort of engage or you seem pretty good at it to me. And I like, usually when you're on, when you engage on Twitter, when it's not to just sort of promote some, you know, your book or an event or something, you, you, you engage in really great to me, informative conversations that I would, as if I was an author, I would be like taking notes. Is that how you look at it? Or what's, do you, do you get anything from engaging on, on Twitter? I like doing it. I think it's, um... cause I think you're really good at it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's, it's just something that's sort of entertaining. I try to give behind the scenes looks and kind of extra information about some of the stuff that I was working on yeah. that people who are really interested in it might find amusing, that, that sort of thing. I've had to change some of the ways I communicate just because as my profile has increased and as the years have gone on, just certain ways of communicating have not worked for me anymore. So one of the problems that I had was, for example, now my DMs are closed, my direct messaging is closed. And I also don't read my direct messages on Instagram. And and I close the ones on Twitter, and they're closed on Facebook. Because it used to be the kind of situation where I might get, you know, one direct message or one question about something once every two months, which is not that bad, right? But then when you're getting questions, like several questions a day, I just couldn't reply to that volume of questions. And then there was there were some communications that were inappropriate. Yeah. There are people who don't know, or maybe they do know that what they're saying is, um, is offensive or just not right to say that some online folks tend to act with a degree of callousness that does not exist in real life. So there were just some interactions that were bad from just aggressive to on on to um, just strange to plain scary. And so I closed that channel of communications with me. I let if anybody wants to get in touch with me for business purposes, they can get in touch with me through my agent. But I can't be answering those sort of things directly anymore. Um, and that is one of the challenges of, of an online virtual world is that not all the conversations that are happening are positive and not everybody behind the screen is somebody who, is, you know, understands boundaries and respect in the same way that you do. There's, yeah, you're, you're showing a lot of grace and you're being very polite. <laughs> you seem like a very nice person. If they are real people, first of all, if they're mm-hmm. not like, you know, bots or something. Um, yeah, they're just fuck. They're assholes, right? There are some people out there who who are ill-intended and are out to cause chaos, and some people who just are just bad people, right? Um, bad actors who are out just to cause, like I said, trouble. Um, and that's has scared a lot of people off. A lot of authors I know off social media, off, like completely, like closed accounts, the whole bit. Um, it sounds like you sort of like looked at it in a real practical way and, and, you know, closing your all good ideas, by the way, closing your DMS down and all the platforms really that would, that's a really smart idea. Um, and, you know, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, they can find a way. Right. So if it's, if, and if, uh, and if they're truly honest about it and they have like a sincere question to ask you, they're going to put in the work to reach you. Right. 
this thing with social media is it's because it's so quick and so easy to, like you said, throw out 240 characters. Well, then it's at the whim of whatever comes to somebody's mind. And that's not always a healthy mind, is it? Yeah, no. And like you say, not, not everybody's coming at it from, um, not everybody wants to have a conversation and it's a a difficult thing when you're a woman and you're a woman of color. And of course, other people with different types of marginalizations also face certain kinds of issues. And often you paint yourself into a target. It's just more difficult to have these conversations with anybody because uh, there's uh, often a level of hostility inherent in them that would not maybe come up if there were, if it was another kind of writer, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, Stephen King gets his fair amount of, of crazy people, uh, but I doubt that he gets us at this, you know, the same kind of level of cruelty that sometimes I've seen levied against black authors, for example. And no, of course, it's not. just very yeah. hard. It yeah, is very hard. And, and that's sort of like one of the things that was brought up with the, so- the story graph issue a couple months ago and different things. You, Stephen King isn't targeted. You are targeted, right? That's, there's a huge difference there. Um, Twitter, I think you would agree, is, is like a really great tool. And it's also a really shitty tool, right? Because it just gives people a platform and it gives anyone a platform. And that's the good and the bad. And there's outliers on anything. Um, I like it. It, it, it. You know, I use it to reach out to people. If it wasn't for Twitter, there's certain friends I wouldn't have, certain authors I wouldn't talk to or engage with. You know what I mean? So I, I really like it. But so for the authors like yourself that remain on it and stay engaged and are able to do that, I'm just, I, uh, I'm basically saying thank you because <laughs> I really appreciate it because I can imagine uh, how difficult it was for you and some of the messages you would have got. Um, moving on from that, how's the Washington Post going? You still got, you're still doing that. What was that one about, um, you were talking about uh, Dune and then uh, climate change and, and science fiction and stuff. You wrote a great article about that. When was that? July, right? June or July? Yeah, that was probably a month or so ago. Yeah, that was a really fun article. I'm a big, I'm a massive Dune fan. Um, and you talked about uh, Jeff Vandermeer's uh, series. And uh, are you, do you work for the Washington Post or... No, uh, Levi Tadar and I are uh, columnists for the Washington Post. So we have the science fiction and fantasy column that we run every month and we we do it together. So he knows a lot more about sci-fi and I tend to veer towards more horror fantasy sort of things, but we write it together and we try to bury it up and uh, mix things old and new, lesser known titles I think sometimes people are like, you didn't mention like Stephen King. And it's like, well, yeah, but he doesn't need it. <laughs> kind, kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah, like we, yeah, we yeah. all know probably that if we're making a list of, you know, the most terrifying haunted building stories of all time, Stephen King is going to be there because he had The Shining, right? It's it's an incredibly famous novel and, and one of those classics. But there's other people who don't get the limelight as much that people don't know about, um, obscure little gems or just interesting asides that should maybe be there. And what Olivia and I try to do to bring to the conversation is to point out some of these unexpected titles and look both into the past of science fiction and fantasy, because there's some really fun and interesting stuff that happened in previous decades, but also try to bring some newer things into the mix so that it's not the golden age of science fiction and fantasy column 
covering the years 1955 to 1965. It looks like a lot of fun to write. You enjoy it. You must enjoy it. I do because Levy is one of my best friends and we have a lot of very kind of specific conversations that are then distilled into these columns and they're strange conversations that you probably wouldn't be able to have <laughs> with lots of other people like let's do a best spiders in fiction column yeah. or something like that that's what it feels like it feels like a conversation that you're having you two are having and that's and that's really fun for me anyways that's really fun to read and uh it is really great for everyone out there. Like I look these up because uh, you guys mentioned titles that I haven't heard anyone talk about before. And you've mentioned titles that I've never heard of before. So it's really great, great or bad, depending on how your TBR list is doing. <laughs> if you want it to get bigger, you know, it's a great resource, but if you don't want it to get bigger then that, will show some self-control. Right. <laughs> but uh, it's really great. Um do they like are they asking you for for to, to submit stuff or do you guys put yourself on deadline or what do you do with that we have a lot of freedom we tend to put ourselves on deadline so yeah. we are always a couple of columns ahead of ahead of what people are seeing in the newspaper sure um so let's get sort of talk a little velvet here a little bit more like velvet anyways um you gave this, you gave, I was reading an interview you did recently and you gave a really great answer. And it was something I was actually thinking about while I was reading the book is that I felt like you wrote it for a specific audience in mind. So anyways, your answer was they are not, uh, quote, there are not many spaces for characters to be dis dislikable nowadays in fiction, except for noir, where you find these less likable characters, but it's even harder to find characters that are, I think, more complex and a little bit more polarizing when it's women characters. For that reason, I wanted to create a character like uh, Mate. Um, and you said you, you, you go on to say you got a lot of pushback actually from editors because they wanted to see more of a domestic, uh, version of the story, right. With, you know, more, more white upper middle-class white women instead. Um, what, what were you thinking when you were getting that feedback from the editors at the time and, and, you know, knowing that this wasn't maybe going to hit with as many people as maybe the publisher would like it to. One of the problems of publishing is that there sometimes is a certain myopia that mm -hmm. develops over time. And as the decades have gone by, the book market has become much more competitive than it used to be. So 30 years ago, there was a lot more space, for example, for mid-listers than there is now. Right. And what we are seeing now is not only less mid-listers, but sometimes editors and agents less willing to take any kind of risk because they want um, to maybe stick to a certain category or a certain type of narrative that will assure a certain amount of sales. So with domestic noir, it's not that I dislike domestic noir because there is a uh, long tradition of what we might call that and some very good and interesting books that would fall into that kind of category, the woman in peril sort of narratives that seem to be offshoots of the Gothic movement and are interesting in that way, just because from a historical perspective, you can see how one genre changed into another, but also some very well, you know, very well written and interesting stuff through the years. But when sometimes becomes something becomes popular, um, sometimes it becomes so popular that editors don't want to see anything else. 
that doesn't fall into that category. And, and, and sometimes they even oversaturate the market where you get it collapsing, like with vampire fiction, where after a certain point in time, nobody wanted vampire books in kind of this post-Twilight boom. And with noir, with domestic noir, um, it's this very popular category. I, I can see the appeal. I see that a lot of people buy it. It's very popular amongst women and women constitute nowadays the largest reading segment that there is really um, around the world, I think, but certainly in the United States. And so catering to them is sort of logical. And if something, if domestic noir sells to that audience, then of course you're going to put out a number of domestic noirs. But when you kind of eliminate anything else that couldn't kind of sit next to those spaces by default, you are kind of um, eliminating the diversity of a system. And what happens when you eliminate the, the narrative diversity of a system is, I mean, have you ever heard of the great potato famine in Ireland? Mm -hmm. Is that if something goes wrong, your whole crop dies and everybody starves kind, kind of situation. So um, I believe in diversity, not only of writers, but in literary modes and genres. And, and I think that when people were telling me that like, no, uh, noir, old-fashioned, like a different kind of noir will not sell. It has to be domestic noir. It has to be white women. It has to be upper-class women. Uh, there has to be a dead lady um, by chapter three, or it's not exciting. I, my, my default reaction is, but why, right? Why does it have to be? Because literature is not a formula. If literature were a formula, I would stop writing. Right. And this is, you know, you know, diversity is such a huge thing that's come up the last couple of years, especially um, because we, you know, because we're all sitting at home on our computers more, we end up, and then thanks to some authors and like yourself, we're learning more about the the nuts and bolts of the publishing industry, right? And the good and bad side of it. And so here they are asking you, a Latinx woman to write <laughs> against your type. And, you, you know, here you are purposely and forcibly, you know, saying no, this is the route I'm going to take, knowing it's less commercial, less likely to sell. It's against the grain, so to speak, right? Does that make you uh, a rebel? Do you feel like a rebel? Um, I don't know. I think I comply with too many things to be a rebel. <laughs> I will not jaywalk even if the street is empty and it's three o'clock in the morning. In this instance, like how about, okay, maybe things, not in right? life, right? Not in life in the general sense, but just in this yeah. instance, maybe in publishing, do you feel like, does that make you a bit of a rebel? I think it kind of does. And I think, and I think we're all, you know, people might him and ha and huff and puff about it, but I think, you know, I am such, uh, I'm a person who is looking, I'm looking for diversity in stories because I've been reading too much of the other stuff for too long. Like I crave it you talked about wanting to go in a different direction as opposed to the usual experiences of white women from a certain class. And yet here I am, I'm a 40 year old white dude living in Toronto. And I think Mate is a fucking great character. I developed feelings for her. Like I have an emotional investment in her. I was obsessed with her for days after I read this book. Like I, I became Elvis. Like I almost kind of fell in love with her in a way. And you know, I, and that's addictive when you're a reader, right? Because you've I've read the other stuff way too much of it. I want more of this. I want more of what you're writing. And 
do you feel that at all? Or is it, is it just still so, is the industry still, still so skewed in the other direction? And because it's so, of course, reliant on sales, do you feel like you're fighting the good fight or do you ever feel like say, you know, fuck it? Well, before I kind of made a shift to noir um, for a couple of books, I had thought about not writing anymore. So I was considering not pursuing fiction um, like I did uh, because I have a day job, right? And one of the things that happens is that my focus on kind of writing fiction in my spare time means that I haven't um, maybe taken the route that some of my colleagues have taken in terms of really focusing on their day job as a more significant part of their career. So I, I saw a lot of my friends being promoted, maybe becoming directors of whatever. And, you know, I've had kind of the same post for a really long time, which is good. I mean, it's a really stable paycheck and I love the people that I work with. But I thought at one point, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy with writing. Why am I still doing this? And I could be doing something else and maybe uh, shining in, uh, in, in my field of, of, of work, of, of my day job. They, the thing is that some of the things that come with writing fiction don't happen when you're writing other kind. My day job is communications, but you know, like people are really appreciative when you can write a good report. They really are. Right. You know, they say that was wonderful. You know, <laughs> oh, I couldn't have done it. That is great. And then when you're writing fiction, sometimes you're getting a DM from somebody who says your hair is ugly. And by the way, your book sucks. Yeah, right. <laughs> and right, so it, right. it, I always just thought, you know, like, why am I spending all my energy on this um, kind of activity that is making me really depressed and miserable? Maybe I should stop writing science fiction and fantasy. And I did. I did. I stopped writing science fiction and fantasy. Like Mexican Gothic was the last one that I wrote. Right. And then I started doing other stuff. But I switched to writing noir because I really have like noir quite a bit for many years. I read a lot of the classics, Dashiell Hammett, all that kind of stuff for many years. And I wanted to do something different. And it was it was good because it was really reinvigorating. It allowed me to just go in a different direction to not feel like I was trapped in a certain kind of category or place. And although um, it was a little bit scary because my agent and I shopped around both on Tame Shore, which was a previous noir that I, that I published and it was really hard selling it. Uh, it was, we ended up selling it to a really, really, really small press, which was the only one that would kind of take it. And they're a really nice press, but that's just say that after you've sent out 30 query query letters to editors, you start to get a bit angsty. Um, and then we were shopping around Velvet was the night. And again, we were getting a lot of kind of pushback. And although that was very stressful and we didn't know if we would be able to sell or not and what would happen with it, both my agent was willing to support me in my desire to write something that was not within the, the same genre that I had written before, not speculative fiction. And it was just invigorating because in a way it allowed me to get out of a different space where I was basically wilting away. Mm. Um, I'm glad you did because this is one of my favorite books of the year, hands down. And, uh, and I read a lot of books. <laughs> uh, it doesn't make me an expert, but um, the point is it's stuck with me in a way that few books have this year. 
Uh, and it starts with this great cover. So I think you're going to have the cover a year again, uh, Sylvia. Congratulations. <laughs> Mexican Gothic was a great cover. This cover is fantastic. Um, Velvet was the night, you know, it's the song lyric uh, from Blue Velvet. Was that the title from the beginning? No, the original title was A Dangerous Eagerness, which was a line that I found, I think, in a telegram by the CIA talking about the situation in Mexico or in some kind of uh, declassified document. That's what I was using. And then my editor, I always have to change my titles. Okay. Uh, so, um, so then my editor said, it's not that sexy. Can we get something <laughs> sexier? Um, Come on, a dangerous eagerness. Um, yes, I, I thought it was very smart. Sexy. But, very sexy, know, yeah. <laughs> but that uh, we ended up going with a song lyric. I was looking at different song lyrics and we went with this one from Velvet Was the Night, which I thought was kind of appropriate and moody enough to It's suggest. very, it's a great title. It's per, it is perfect too. Like it doesn't make any sense, of course, until you read the book. But once you read the book, it's perfect. And this cover is perfect for it too. That, what was it? The Dangerous Eagerness? Is that what you just said? Dangerous Eagerness. Yeah, well, a Dangerous Eagerness. I, so was, I assume that was the government referring to the, the, the student protesters and stuff. Is that... Is that who they were talking about? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah it makes sense. So, um, yeah. So Velvet was a night. Anyone can look online the summary, look it up, um, what this book is about. But, um, I mean, there's so much of this book is based on actual true events. And you start the book that way with that CIA, CIA letter. And, um, it's very nonfiction, this book, in a lot of ways. Because everything, you know, everything you talk about happened in this book. Um, takes place, like the Mexican Dirty War, which lasted from the 60s to the early 80s. The book starts starts off with um, the Corpus Christi massacre, um, and then from there you like reference so many real world historical figures. Some some known like uh, you know Che Guevara, some maybe less known like Carlos uh, Magarella, Right? You was there? Did you have to sort of? Did you find yourself like maybe leaning too much in one or one direction, like nonfiction or fiction, and maybe have to like tone it back or bring bring? Because it's incredibly balanced. I find. Did you struggle with that at all when you were writing it? There's a lot of things and facts that I kind of, in a way, wish I had included, but I didn't. And it's just because life is stranger than fiction in many, in many ways. Yes. So there was a lot about the music of the time period and some bands that I didn't mention that, but that was still incredibly interesting how we had this kind of mini wave of, English language music in, in Mexico at one point, because all the kind of psychedelic rock that was developing was being brought to Mexico City from bands that were playing in the border zone. And they were composing songs in English, because when you live in Tijuana, you just, you know, the border is very porous. So there was some of that. And then there were other things that uh, that happened, uh, real historical things that, that took place that were just very strange, but but very real. And so, for example, there's um, one of the photographers that actually managed to take pictures during this, during the Corpus Christi massacre. He was later um, captured by Mexican government forces and tortured for, because he published his pictures in the front page of a newspaper and he didn't, he was not able to work again Mm. in photography. But the guy who tortured him was this um, kind of incredibly famous just evil guy who was part of the Mexican um, uh, police forces, uh, Miguel Nazar. He is he was a Lebanese Mexican kind of cop, and he was very flamboyant in the way that he 
kind of dressed and acted. And he was just the leader of these uh, kind of torture squads. It, it's just amazing the kind of stuff that was that was going on behind the scenes at a political level in Mexico at the time. And of course, when we had the pandemic and COVID happened and they were giving the vaccinations in Mexico just a few months ago, the guy who was president at the time, Echeverria, who ordered this massacre to take place, he was getting his vaccination um, in Mexico City. So it was just a little bit surreal to see this kind of mass murderer at the age of 99 or 100, he's still alive, getting his vaccine. And if this were a movie or a novel, it would have had a tidier resolution maybe where the bad <laughs> people would have been punished, but that's not the way it works out. That's right? not the way the real world works at all. Is it? Yeah. It's, and that's, you know, cause history, when you control the narrative too, right. Historically now, though we do know a lot about some of the bad shit that went on. Right. And there's, but I mean, as much as we know, there's probably way worse stuff, but when you control the narratives for so long, it blurs the lines, doesn't it? For a lot of people. And the more time passes, the more, things people forget right and but uh that's a funny story so yeah it sounds like you sort of had an embarrassment of riches there from the from the historical from the non-fiction point of view right about what to include and but it is you're trying to tell a story at the same time so that was sort of my question right you can't sort of like flood this whole thing with with historical facts and people and figures that's not the story you're not telling the dirty war the story of the dirty war right that's the backdrop to the story that you are trying to tell yeah, it's, I mean, obviously it's an interesting background, but ultimately mm-hmm. it's not a nonfiction book. So there's just a lot of things that were very interesting and that really happened yeah, <laughs> around the yeah. time, um, you know, yeah. in all parts, not just in Mexico, but in Latin America, where the U.S. was trying to destabilize governments and kind of stop any kind of communist action. And it was coming in and uh, with CIA personnel and just connecting connected to coups and the way that all this operated was just like very interesting but um, on the other hand you can't put all of it and and it's a very complex web of history which goes back also decades and has roots in some other things and then will give birth to even newer things in in the future because one of the things that happened uh, later on is that the the forces that kind of control the drug dealing in Mexico at one point, certainly in the 70s and in kind of the early 80s, were government forces. Mm-hmm. So right, right. once that kind of circle of power was broken up because there was a big scandal and some of these government shady government agencies were uh, dissolved, that's when you get cartels because nobody is reining them in anymore. And, and we get to this uh, point in time of what we have right now. And there's other stuff that happens in the mix. Um, it's certainly not a simple story, but to tell that you would need like several volumes of like a nonfiction encyclopedia. Yeah. And I mean, like there's so many threads you could have pulled on too, even more, like even like the ask asterisk crowd. I mean, that's a whole book, right? If you, if you want to tell a story from their point of view or the singing cafes, like there's a whole book there too i mean there's so many threads you could have pulled on and it's amazing how you have the your main characters jump in and out of these moments in history that are so important to the times and they're just like they're they're you know bouncing off of it 
running through it in in this wonderful way in and around it wrapping around each other and just missing each other and still in the backdrop of all this really important historical stuff that was happening to mexico at the time and this goes to sort of one of the reasons why i love mate so much is that she's so uh, au courant about everything and there's all this stuff going on around her there's a line in the, in the in this book where you write she just was part she was part of a story and that line means nothing in any other context to anybody else right it's a simple it's you know six words put together that don't really mean that much but it, but in this story with the way that you've introduced us to her and built her up in a certain way i wrote in my review that line lands like an atomic bomb because for her that's everything for her to be caught up in this whole thing is everything she's ever wanted, but it's really hard for her at first, isn't it? Yeah. There's, um, there's kind of two strands of popular fiction that are happening in the novel. And Maite is interested in romance novels and in that kind of sort of narrative. And so that's really what she wants to do is to one day slip into a romance comic book. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, that's what she would wish would happen. Uh, a man would sweep her off her feet and it would proceed in a soap opera-ish fashion. And instead she clashes with a noir, with a noir nar- narrative, which is not what she wanted at all, but that's sort of the, the story that she finds herself navigating. And in a way, Albus, who is the other kind of co-protagonist of the story, is in a similar situation he is somebody that would probably want to be in a, uh, like in a Jackie Chan movie or a James Bond movie. It has those sort of semi-macho action dreams, but at the same time, he doesn't seem very well suited for them. And he also finds himself in a kind of like a shitty noir story, just like Mike this. So they're both not able to inhabit the fantasy spaces that they want to inhabit at the same time, the fantasy spaces are very important for them. And they're almost the only thing that they have. And you keep them apart as long as possible. Um, And I thought the control you had over the story was incredible, especially keeping these two apart for as long as you did. Was that on your, that must've been on your mind. Like when is the right moment to have these two, their lives intersect? I mean, I mean, their lives are already intersected, I guess, but did you struggle with that at all? Or did you have a clear idea of of how it was going to go? Yeah, they're echoes of each other throughout the narrative, subtle and more more firmer about how they're both kind of navigating the story and it's running in parallel. It is something that I think uh, does not make some readers very happy. I think uh, some people may come into it and expect um, kind of like a traditional narrative romantic narrative and it's it's not about that and yet I think it's a book that is a lot about romance at the same time and the images that we build about people in our minds but it it definitely is not the sort of I guess normal experience that a lot of people will have and sometimes when you do that um, people get really angry at you because (laughs) they want it all the romance crowd especially right yeah 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 Yeah. and um but there's two ways to, I think, there's two ways to uh, to write. And one is you write within the tropes and within the genre. So, you know, you write a, a straight Western, for example, with the cowboy and the hat and the home on the range. And that sort of thing is fine. 
But the other way to write is to write against the category and the tropes that, that you are most often associated with. And I'm definitely not uh, writing this novel in a traditional right. um, 1950s noir because that would have a femme fatale, for example, a sexy femme fatale. And uh, Maite couldn't work her way out of a paper bag in, in that sense. Right. And so it's so it's playing with the with the constraints and the expectations of the noir. It's also playing by bouncing romance into it. It's toying, I think, in that way with with the narratives. But I like that. I, I like, um, you know, stretching things and seeing what I can get what I can get away with. Otherwise, it's not so so fun for me. Um, I know that there were many writers that wrote magnificent pop fiction and noirs and they saw them just like that, you know, like one by the week almost, right? You know, yes, like right, right, the mysterious right, femme right. fatale, the the detective um with a drinking problem and then the Smokes lady band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and like those are very fun. I love those. But I'm I'm trying to poke and push and pull at some of these and see what comes out of it. And and the the thing is that I firmly believe that you have to kind of trust the the author or like I like to say, you kind of have to trust the storyteller. Because when I was a kid, my great grandmother used to tell me stories at night. And, you know, she told me she told me magnificent stories about her childhood during the revolution and magical creatures in the mountains in Mexico that really helped my imagination flourish. But she never told me okay, this is going to be a three-act story and this is the protagonist and this is the antagonist and this is how it's going to play. And it's, you know, it's a multiverse thing. So we're going to do it like marble and, you know, like like that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. I think when you become too, enam- too enamored of the own story in your head, that's a problem. And when you don't trust the storyteller, that's a problem. Because one of the situations that happens when somebody is speaking a story to you like my great grandmother did, is that you are trusting them. You're sitting down before them and they're, and they're sitting down and they're t- telling you, I'm going to tell you a story and you're willing to listen to it and to let it guide you instead of telling them, you know, this is the way the story should go. And in a way, because we are so aware of tropes Sometimes I think, and we're so aware of narrative because it's a very common thing through video games, through movies, through other kinds of books, we have lost some of that trust. And oftentimes we kind of, you know, are almost pushing the, the storyteller off the stool and telling them, no, that's the way it, it should go. That's right. And, you know, a big problem with that is too, is the industry, like, like we've said so many times in, you know, the last hour, that's what the industry is pushing though too, right? not the the con- conventional wisdom reigns supreme as in publishing right because that's what they want to sell we read a lot of the same books don't we <laughs> right like you know the same the sort of same same structure same dy- same dynamic same the outcome you can you know the outcome before you're even anywhere near it and i got to say that's one of the reasons why i love this book so much is that it's i think it's one of, i think it might be the most romantic book i've read this year to be honest with you, this push pull that you have is so incredible. And I love how it's, I love the unconventionality of it so much. And I think it's wonderful. And as someone who reads a lot of books and reads a lot of the books that feel the same, this book feels different to me. And I really, really, really enjoyed it, um, Sylvia. And I'm glad 
Um, you may not think of yourself as a rebel, but I do. Do you like uh, Elvis and Mate? I like all my characters for very different <laughs> reasons. I like I like villains a lot too. Yeah. They're also very fun to write. And but I have a really big respect for unlikable characters. Let's let's just put it that way. There's you know there's a beauty in something that is imperfect. Yeah. And and I really like looking at those kind of jagged edges of characters more than sometimes I like to look at the characters that I feel more sympathetic for or that I think are really very perfect just because it's, it's kind of appreciating I think the the beauty of chaos and 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 of imperfection that comes that comes in life yeah it just might depend on the mood you're in too and I'm talking about for the reader like sometimes I just want pure pulp fantasy like out of this world wacky stuff but a lot of times I want real I want tactile, like tactility in my characters. And these characters are very tactile. They're very real. They're not hyper-realized versions of, of what characters are supposed to be, right? Of heroines and heroes and whatever. Uh, yeah, there's no not a lot of redeeming qualities in, in these people, but I think they're doing the best they can with what they got <laughs> and the time, the time in which they exist. And and like I said, I fell in love with Mate. I, I'm with Elvis. I, I, I could see why he, from a distance preferred her over uh leonora so i'm with him i'm with Elvis. he's got good taste so do you um sylvia thank you so much for doing this obviously i'm a huge fan of this book and uh you know i hope it does well of course so you get to write as many books as you want yeah you were already on moved on to the next book i assume what is next next year will be the release of the daughter of dr moreau so that's set in 19th century mexico in the south of the country and it should be out next summer. We haven't quite figured out the date yet, but my publisher has a manuscript. So we're getting ready to lay it out and do the fun, the fun kind of stuff now. Can you tell us anything just even sort of, is it, is it noir again? It, it's a historical kind of, I want to say sci-fi. I'm not even okay. sure what I would, what okay. I would classify it as. And I, I found it really fun. So I, oh, ho- I hope other people kind of find it. I think it's it's a very lush exploration Perfect. of a certain time period in Mexico. And and I really loved, loved writing it. So we're working, yeah, like it's been delivered and we're working on that. And right now I'm also working on the next book after that. I just had a meeting with my editor where I presented my idea for that one. So that's, Perfect. you know. Gotta gotta write some of that too. <laughs> gotta get right get writing and work and try and That's enjoy right. and try and enjoy life all at the same time. It's quite a thing, isn't it? So um, well, I won't keep you from it then. So uh best of luck on everything in the rest of the year and and of course stay safe. And uh we look forward to talking to you next time. There you have it, another episode of Everything is Canon all wrapped up. Huge thanks to Sylvia for taking the time to chat. It's clear I love this book and getting to talk to her all about it was a real treat. The book is out now, so pick up a copy wherever books are sold and head on over to sylviamorenagarcia.com to find out more information. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you choose to listen and head on over to cinelinks.com for the latest movie, TV, books, and gaming news. Please continue to be safe out there. Bye for now.